Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Well, 2020 has been an extraordinary year, to say the least. The House of Representatives impeached President Donald Trump. A novel coronavirus pandemic swept the world, with a vaccine being approved in December. Protesters demanded racial justice after the murder of George Floyd. And Joe Biden won a divisive presidential election over President Trump, in which more Americans voted than ever before, but which, at the time of this taping, the incumbent has continued to contest. Through it all, Brookings experts offered cogent analysis and solutions related to these major events, and also for a wide range of other important policy issues facing our nation and the world. In 2020, I've had the great opportunity to host on the Brookings Cafeteria over 100 experts in almost 70 episodes on many of these policy areas. And today, I'm pleased to present just a sample of some of the conversations I or guest hosts have had this year. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get information about and links to all our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. Let's start with a look at COVID-19 and its disparate impacts on women and people of color in the United States. Senior fellow Richard Reeves, in a piece with Tiffany Ford, wrote that the trope is that COVID-19 doesn't discriminate. Turns out it does, as Reeves explained. It was partly a reaction that Tiffany and I had to this line that was going around, which was that the virus doesn't discriminate. (laughs) And I think the idea behind that was we're all in it together. Everyone should do their part. And of course, that's true. But it seemed to us to stand in stark contrast to the way in which the virus was affecting different people very differently. And so to that extent, the virus absolutely does discriminate. It discriminates certainly on the basis of your age. It discriminates on the basis of your health condition. And it also discriminates on the basis of your sex, whether you're male or female. And so there are various ways in which the virus is really differentially affecting people for very different reasons, it has to be said. And so that was something that kind of motivated the work we've done now, both on differences by sex and by race in terms of the way that the COVID-19 pandemic has played out. And I think in some ways it's acted as something like the flash of an X-ray bulb, exposing fractures of one kind or another, vulnerabilities of one kind or another in our society. And so it's been revelatory in that sense. And the question then is, what do we learn from that process and from this very, very difficult time that we're going through that could be useful as we move forward? Of the many grave impacts we've witnessed with the coronavirus pandemic, the damage to the U.S. economy and its workers has been one of the most severe, and in particular, the impact on the U.S. hospitality industry. In a recurring audio segment we call Metro Lens, Tracy Haddon Lowe, a fellow with the Ann T. and Robert M. Bass Center for Transformative Placemaking at the Brookings Institution, explained how COVID-19 harmed the hospitality industry and its workers. No sector of the economy makes this more obvious than leisure and hospitality. A real vacation cannot occur via Zoom. The hospitality sector relies on group social environments and in-person interaction. So as the pandemic in the U.S. has morphed from a temporary break from normal into a drawn-out struggle to make it, no industry has been more impacted than leisure and hospitality. This sector includes some really big players. The biggest 1% of hospitality businesses, like global hotel chains, make up 39% of the sector's employment. That said, 
99% of leisure and hospitality businesses are small, like local arts venues and independent restaurants and bars. And these small businesses still make up the majority of hospitality employment, 61%. These business owners and workers are mostly women and people of color. They own 64% of accommodation and food services businesses. And almost a quarter of hospitality workers are Hispanic or Latino, though they make up less than 18% of the U.S. population. These businesses and workers have been seriously disrupted by pandemic-related shutdowns. The pain has not been spread evenly around the country. Places that are travel destinations and local governments that depend on tourism and events for revenue are taking a hard hit. But so far, the federal government response to balance that out has been majorly inadequate. Just a handful of U.S. metros are highly exposed in the hospitality sector. Beach communities like Atlantic City, Ocean City, Myrtle Beach, and Maui have over a quarter of their workforce in the sector, as does Las Vegas. But of the 121 U.S. counties that have more than a fifth of their workforce in hospitality, 89 are actually in rural areas. This is places like the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and the western counties that surround national parks like Yosemite and Arches. These rural areas have few alternative employment options. This pandemic isn't easy for anybody, but if we want to come out with a functioning economy, we need to understand that the impacts are far worse for some than others. There are people, businesses, and places struggling, not because they are weak, but because the time when we'll need their strength in our recovery has not yet come. We'll recover faster and stronger if we have a set of policies to carry us all through the next two years that includes everyone. The next two voices you'll hear are from scholars whose work puts a sharp focus on the crisis of racial inequity in a range of areas, including the economy, business, neighborhood home values, and criminal justice. In this clip, Andre Perry, a fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program, and Rashawn Ray, a David M. Rubenstein fellow in the Governance Studies Program, laid out their case for reparations for black Americans. In a country where the average white family has about 10 times the amount of wealth as the average black family, the reparations case is aimed at creating wealth-building opportunities that address key racial disparities in education, housing, and business ownership. Here's Andre Perry, followed by Rashawn Ray. Reparations is owed. It's a moral debt. So part of this is not necessarily what will happen in the future. I'm sure if reparations take hold and we address the structural inequalities that currently exist, we're not going there right now, but you certainly have to do both. But this is what is owed. This isn't necessarily in earnest of trying to achieve some ultimate goal. This is what is owed. And with that said, I do believe once you cut the check, you provide educational services, you provide housing services, you'll see a raising of the quality of life over time. But for me, this is something we have a moral and financial legal obligation to do, not because we want some outcome, but it's something we should do because it's right. It certainly says we acknowledge that we did an unbelievable harm to millions this is about atoning for a past wrong. If someone is murdered, and then years later, one of the reasons why we don't have a statute of limitation on murder, and then the person who did that crime is convicted, we don't judge whether or not that's successful based on how well the family 
of the person who was murdered does. It doesn't work like that. This is about atoning for a past wrong. And again, what's important is that black Americans are the only group to have been systematically discriminated against by the federal government who have not received reparations. Japanese Americans receive reparations. Native Americans receive reparations. Of course, we have a European example where there are people who are Jewish Americans in the United States who are still receiving reparations from the Holocaust. We have these examples. You don't hear Germans, and I spent time in Germany quite a substantial amount of time. You don't hear Germans going around saying, oh, I didn't have anything to do with the Holocaust. I wasn't around there. Jews shouldn't still be getting money. In what world does that exist? Black Americans are the only group that we use these divisive narratives to try to justify it. And unfortunately, as Andre was saying, that deals on one hand with anti-blackness and that also deals with the fact that white supremacy is still firmly embedded in our country. I mean, we see this from the fact that black men are getting stopped at the entrances of stores for wearing a mask and white men with KKK hoods are allowed to go in and purchase apples. So we even see how these sort of things play out today and we have a long pattern of history to try to deal with it. is the author of the book Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities, published by Brookings Institution Press this year and available wherever you like to buy books. Twenty twenty was a milestone year for many events, most notably for the centennial of the nineteenth amendment which prohibited denying the right of U.S. citizens to vote on account of sex. To commemorate this historic event, Brookings launched a series of papers in a new gender equality series to explore how the right was imperfectly implemented and how gender equality has evolved since the amendment's passage. In one cafeteria episode in August, I asked Brookings scholars and staff to reflect on gender equality and the 19th Amendment at 100. Here's Stephanie Aronson, Vice President and Director of Economic Studies at Brookings, with her perspective. To indulge in a little history, the suffragist movement grew out of women's activism in the abolition movement, and it was linked to movements working for child welfare, workplace safety, and moral reform. And after the right to vote was won, women, black and brown women especially, were active in the civil rights movement, out of which grew the second wave feminist movement. And more recently, we have seen women playing a key role in our ongoing efforts to expand civil and economic rights, including at this moment in Black Lives Matter. In fact, the struggle for the right to vote itself wasn't a one-time battle. Black and brown women have had to fight to exercise that right since the passage of the 19th Amendment. And even today, franchise is not assured in practice, regardless of what the law says. The suffrage movement also holds lessons for us today. Although women from a variety of backgrounds fought for suffrage, it was not an inclusive, multiracial, multiethnic, non-racist movement. I say this not to hold our foremothers to today's standards, but to acknowledge their weaknesses and learn from their shortcomings of that movement so I can improve my own work for economic and political equality today. 
Since the 19th Amendment passed, women have made huge strides in their efforts to be full political and economic participants in our country. Of course, I've been very excited by the nomination of Kamala Harris to be vice president, only the fourth woman and first woman of color to be nominated for one of the two highest positions in our government. Nonetheless, a lot of work remains to be done. But when I look to a more perfect future, rather than any very specific goals, I think about what I want for both my children, one girl and one boy, and for all children, which is that they can become who they are meant to be, who they want to be, without limitations imposed by their gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or physical ability. For this future to come true, all children need a solid economic foundation to secure their success. And this necessity helps motivate me in my work as an economist. Just because the anniversary of the 19th Amendment has passed doesn't mean the issues it raises for gender equality and gender discrimination are settled. Visit brookings.edu slash 19A to read the essays and learn more. Brookings and outside experts on drug policy collaborated for over a year in a multidisciplinary project to examine the opioid crisis in America and develop new policies to reduce demand, provide treatment, and implement better law enforcement mechanisms to control the supply of illicit drugs. I interviewed six of the project's experts in one cafeteria episode in which they discussed their research and recommendations. Here's part of that special episode on opioids in America, in which senior fellow Vonda Feldbad-Brown describes the rise of synthetic opioids like fentanyl and the problem of a weak global regulatory regime to control their manufacture, use, and import. When synthetic opioids started emerging about a decade ago or started emerging new production techniques that made them very easily producible, the Obama and Trump administration spent a lot of time trying to get China to tighten its regulation. Why was that? Because many of the synthetic opioids would be classified as illegal or illegal without special licensing in the United States, but not in China. So you had several years of effort that focused supply policy on trying to get China to so-called schedule fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. Felbab Brown explains that fentanyl has legal uses, including in surgery or intubating COVID-19 patients. Fentanyl requires special licensing for use and import, but China did not have such regulations until very recently. Moreover, there are also many analogs of fentanyl, similar at the molecular level to fentanyl. Many do not have legal uses, but were long unregulated in China. These kind of regulations for a long time did not exist in China, where the production was essentially unregulated and law enforcement made no effort to stop sales into the United States, even though they were causing massive devastation in the United States. So in the latter part, both the Obama and Trump administrations spent a lot of effort trying to get China to classify fentanyl and precursor agents for fentanyl in the same way that the United States classifies them. To, they use the amount of production facilities and amount of diversion. That finally happened in April of 2019, where China announced it was now doing what the United States has wanted. Of so many great moments in the Brookings Cafeteria this year, one of them was being part of a production team on a special five-part podcast series we called Our Nation of Immigrants. In the series, 
Senior Fellow John Hudak explored the facts and tackled the myths that underpin the immigration policy debate. Along the way, he spoke with a range of people who shared their insights and experiences on the issues, including elected leaders at the national, state, and local levels, immigrants and children of immigrants, policy experts, and advocates for better immigration policy. And he discovered significant common ground on which to craft a smarter immigration policy. The clip you are about to hear comes from Yaneli Yamas, then a student at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, who shared her experience of being the daughter of undocumented immigrants and her fear about what would happen to her and her younger brothers if their parents had been deported. It's definitely very scary hearing all of the rhetoric surrounding immigration. Again, on Twitter, I saw a tweet, I can't remember who wrote it, but it did say, if immigrants just come here for handouts, why does ICE always raid workplaces? And while that's funny, it's also scary to think that your parents could go to work one day and not come back. I am the oldest of three siblings. Both of my brothers are still teenagers. One of my brothers is in middle school. The other one is 16. He's a junior in high school. When all of the ice raids were happening, I was already developing a plan. What would I do if my parents were deported? I am 22 years old. I am a full-time student, and I'm doing my best to work as much as I can, but I don't make enough to make a mortgage payment. I don't make enough to support myself and two teenage boys. So I've gotten as far as I have because my family has been very supportive of education. But had my parents been deported, I would have to give it all up. I'm in the honors college. As I mentioned, I got a pretty good LSAT score. I have a near-perfect GPA, and I'll be going to law school on a full ride. I would have had to give all of that up. I was seriously considering dropping out of school and getting a full-time job should my parents be deported, which looking back now, it was a very scary time. But at the time, I just thought this is what needed to be done. Because to uproot them, I mean, what else would have been left for us? We could A, go to Mexico with my parents, which I don't see what good that would have done anyone because my brothers can't even speak Spanish very well. On top of that, they haven't graduated high school, so they would essentially be going to another country without any credentials. I just don't see a future for them, especially when they've built all of their lives here. They would be going to a country where they can't even communicate very well. I would have had to become the head of the family. Again, I'm glad that those worries are behind me because my parents are legal residents now. And it's a significant weight that has been lifted off my shoulders, but this is something that has only happened three months ago. So before three months ago, it was sitting down with my parents when all of the ice rates were happening and they were all over Twitter. I literally sat my parents and my brothers down and I said to them, these are your rights. Don't open the door to any strangers. Don't answer any questions. If anyone comes to the door, call me and I will figure things out. Luckily, I have made some connections in like the criminal justice faculty. I know a few lawyers. So I was already making a contingency plan. But I think what about all the people that don't have those connections that literally would not know what to do if their parents just didn't come home one day? I wouldn't really know what to do if my parents didn't come home one day. Would I move with my family in California? Would I stay here? One thing's for certain, though, I would not have had the chance to focus on my school or focus on my LSAT or focus on law school applications if I had to be a single mom to two teenage boys. 
You can download and listen to all the episodes in Our Nation of Immigrants podcast series at brookings.edu slash immigration podcast. The research of Brookings scholars spans not only policy challenges here in the United States, but across the globe as well. Every January for the past nine years, the Africa Growth Initiative at Brookings has released a multi-author report that aims to help policymakers and Africa watchers stay ahead of the trends and developments impacting the continent. At the start of 2020, I interviewed then-AGI Director Brahima Sangafoa Kulabali about the 2020 report, which focused on challenges and opportunities for Africa's next decade. The report notes that never before has Africa been better primed for trade, investment, and mutually beneficial partnerships. What, I asked, are some of the factors in Africa right now that are making this possible? Right, so I think the first factor to note really is the overall economic environment is very positive. We've seen economic growth that's been really strong. If you go back to, say, the year 2000, and you look at projections, say, through 2024, you would have had like one-third of the African countries growing at a rate of 5% or higher. So that's a quarter century of really solid economic growth. Going into the next five years, seven of the 10 fastest growing world economies will be on the continent. So that's a very positive macroeconomic environment. But we're also seeing a lot of improvements in terms of governance. We're seeing improvement in business environments. It's very often you will see most African countries, you will notice that the top 10 best performers in terms of uh, doing business tended to be on the African continent, half of those top 10 performers. You also notice that there's a lot of enthusiasm and progress toward regional integration, where now they're going to knock down barriers to trade and then facilitate free movement of people as well as the transport linkages. So all of that provides really catalyst for Africa again to tap into its potential. Kulubali recently became vice president and director of the Global Economy Development Program at Brookings. I look forward to interviewing the new director of the Africa Growth Initiative, Aloysius Uche Ordu, about the 2021 edition of Foresight Africa in the new year. Continuing to focus on global issues, I had another wonderful collaboration on a special episode featuring a range of voices. This time it was with Patrick Hanahan and Jenny Perlman Robinson from the Center for Universal Education, one of the leading policy centers focused on universal quality education around the developing world. Hanahan is director of the Millions Learning Project, and he interviewed six education leaders from around the world who are part of the real-time scaling labs that collaborate with the center. Perlman Robinson is a senior fellow in the center and is co-author of the Millions Learning Report. In this clip from the special episode, she explains what the real-time scaling labs are all about. During research conducted for the Millions Learning Report, we had the chance to meet with many education leaders around the world policymakers, NGO and community leaders, and many others. Despite coming from different parts of the world, these education leaders shared several scaling-related challenges. For example, these include pursuing growth in a linear fashion instead of allowing for the necessary experimentation and iteration based on new data and insights, an overemphasis on the technical design of initiative rather than considerations of the broader enabling environment from the start, and finally, a feeling of working in isolation These education leaders expressed they wanted more opportunities to exchange insights and lessons learned with others working on similar scaling-related endeavors in education. Based on these insights, we at the Center for Universal Education began looking into how we might create a participatory action research approach that responded to these shared challenges. 
and provided a structured space for collective learning and peer-to-peer engagement among key stakeholders as the scaling process unfolds in real time. This was how the idea of the real-time scaling labs came about. The scaling labs have been operating for about two years and we're continuing to learn about scaling together with lab partners in several locations around the world. The ultimate goal is to support these initiatives as they scale while simultaneously sharing deeper insights and lessons as to how policymakers, civil society, and the private sector can most effectively work together to bring about large-scale transformation in the quality of children's learning and development. Real-time scaling labs are currently operating in Botswana, Cote d'Ivoire, Jordan, the Philippines, and Tanzania, with a new lab being explored that spans three countries in the Middle East. The approach is also being adapted as we work with a new set of partners that are part of the Knowledge and Innovation Exchange, which is a joint endeavor between the Global Partnership for Education and Canada's International Development Research Center. This past June, I published a report along with you, Patrick, and our colleague, Molly Curtis, detailing emerging findings and key insights from the initial work of the Real-Time Scaling Lab. This fall, Brookings launched the Center for Sustainable Development, whose mission is to pursue research and insights to advance global sustainable development and to implement the UN Sustainable Development Goals across all countries. In November, I interviewed the Center's inaugural director, Senior Fellow John MacArthur, who talked about the goals of the new center, why sustainable development remains so critical in these times, and why he's passionate about the work. I've gone through my own journey on this uh, over the past several years, and I remember the first time someone told me in 2012, there was an intergovernmental agreement to set these things called the Sustainable Development Goals. And I remember in a very cheeky way, I was talking to a senior official at the time and I said, I love sustainable development. I just don't know what it means. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking through what it means and the international policy debates have really come a long ways to define what it means. Let me give you what's like the big picture conceptual answer and then a little more of what would be the jargon and then third, how I would boil it down. So the big picture conceptual answer, it actually goes back to someone named Girl Harlem Brundtland, who led something called the Brundtland Commission back in the 80s. She was a Norwegian prime minister, very famous world leader, head of WHO. And going into the first Earth Summit, really a long, long time ago, they came up with this definition of advancing the current generation's well-being without sacrificing any of the future generation's well-being. That's kind of the essence of it. So we do well, but we don't inhibit our future generation's ability to do well and to support the planet. Over time, it's been refined, especially as this notion of goals came to be. What does this really mean? And there are three pillars to it. It's the economic, the prosperity, the social, the people and the environmental, the planet. So it really comes down to people, prosperity, and planet, and they need to work together. Now, in jargon, it's things like combating inequality within and between countries, preserving the planet, creating inclusive and sustainable economic growth, fostering social inclusion, all these things that are, I would say, in a certain sense, buzzwords, but also kind of core concepts. But the key thing is, No country has yet solved all of them together. So even the United States or Canada, very wealthy countries on average, have a lot of people getting left behind. 
And when these goals were set in 2015, after a few years of the world's most inclusive negotiations or public input that the world's ever seen, the one sentence that all the negotiators from 193 countries kept coming back to saying over and over again was, we will leave no one behind. And if anything, we will support the furthest behind first. And so this notion of people getting left behind has been central to this. And in the global sense, the first among equals of the challenges of sustainable development is eradicating extreme poverty, because those are the people who have been most left behind, most excluded from life opportunity in the most basic sense. But it also goes to these questions of relative poverty within countries and within communities and who's getting left behind. And then it gets into deeper questions of, well, great if you have high average incomes. What if your carbon emissions are going up? Or great if you have high average incomes, but it's only the top 1% that's getting the gains. And then if we look at countries like the U.S., we see, well, gosh, average life expectancy has been coming down in several of the past most recent years, on average for the country, even while income's been going up. That can't be right. And so I boil it down in the simplest sense to every country in the world is trying to solve three basic problems. And I call it recoupling, decoupling, and we-coupling. Turning now to issues in international relations and global security. China was the topic of many episodes of the Brookings Cafeteria podcast this year. One reason is that I handed over the microphone seven times to Lindsay Ford, a David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Foreign Policy, for her interviews with other scholars in the Global China Project, the two-year initiative to assess China's growing role in the world. In the final episode of the special podcast series, which actually started in 2019, Ford interviewed project co-directors Rush Doshi and Ryan Haas about what they learned from the Global China series about China's ambitions and what the U.S.-China relationship might look like in the future. Here's Ryan Haas taking on that question. For me, I've really walked away from this exercise with three big takeaways. I think the first one is that taken as a whole, the papers do a pretty good job of highlighting the global scale of China's ambitions. My reading of the papers leads me to the conclusion that China is not seeking to consolidate a leadership position in Asia and then use that as a springboard toward assuming a greater leadership role on global affairs. It's trying to do both at the same time. It's trying to strengthen its global position at the same time as it strengthens its position in Asia. The second big takeaway I've had is that economic incentives and disincentives appear to be China's tool of first resort as it seeks to expand its influence and gain acceptance of its ambitions. Whether we're looking in Central Asia or the Pacific Islands or the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, the storyline seems to rhyme about China using economic muscle to advance its interest. And, you know, military hard power has been an important aspect of the story as well. I think Josh White's paper in particular does a good job of talking about how China is trying to strengthen its military position in the Indian Ocean region. But it's not always, or at least not yet, at the foreground of China's efforts to expand its influence outside of its immediate periphery. And then the third takeaway I have is that it's not a foregone conclusion that China's strategy is going to deliver on all of its aspirations. Viewed collectively, I don't think the papers fall on one side of this debate or the other. They're sort of scattered across the spectrum. But I don't leave a reading of all these papers with a strong conviction that China is on a glide path toward achieving all of its stated ambitions. I think it's clear 
through the papers that China's power and influence and reach is growing rapidly in some areas. But so too are some of the concerns about the impacts and implications of China taking on a greater role in different parts of the world, whether it's really elite capture or environmental issues or labor issues, etc. A special thanks for me to Lindsay Ford for her series of excellent interviews in the Global China series. Staying on the topic of international relations and foreign policy challenges, as well as handing the mic off to a colleague, I was pleased to present an interview with Wolfgang Ischinger, Germany's former ambassador to the United States and former deputy foreign minister of his country, who authored the recent Brookings Press title, World in Danger, Germany and Europe in an Uncertain Time. My colleague Bill Feynman, director of the Brookings Institution Press, asked Ambassador Issinger how will Germany view the election of Joe Biden as next president of the United States. I give you an answer in two parts. First, if you look at the German and more generally the European media reaction, the political classes react, it's overwhelmingly positive. Of course, overwhelmingly. So that's great. The second part of my answer is, and that's my personal view, I warn against too much euphoria because I believe I am aware of the fact that even if he wanted to, the next president of the United States will have serious constraints. He will have not a totally free run because he will predictably maybe not enjoy the full support of both houses of Congress. There will be 70 million American voters who voted for the second time for Donald Trump. And how will this play out in the coming years where you have the next election cycle is only two years from now. You have elections coming up. So I warn against too much euphoria and I try to tell my fellow Germans the worst thing we could now do is to lean back and say now Transatlantic paradise will happen because Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be such nice people and they will want to work with Europe, etc. No, we need to do our homework. We need to be forthcoming on such issues as military burden sharing, on trade issues, on how we could conceivably coordinate on China, which I think will be one of the big, big, big issues for transatlantic friction or for transatlantic cooperation. So we need to do our homework. We shouldn't wait for Joe Biden to bring us the goodies. We should offer broad-based cooperation. World in Danger by Wolfgang Issinger is available on the Brookings website or wherever you like to get books. It's said you should save the best for last. I think all of the Brookings Cafeteria interview clips I've included in this episode are terrific, so I won't say this final clip is the best, but I also won't say it isn't. In the episode from which this clip comes, Brookings President John R. Allen interviewed senior fellow Fiona Hill about the role that public servants and expertise have during a time of crisis. I published this episode on March 20th, at the end of the first full week in which Brookings scholars and staff work from home in the midst of the cascading coronavirus pandemic. Fiona Hill served as Deputy Assistant to the President of the United States and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council from 2017 to 2019. You may recall that she testified before the House of Representatives in late 2019 during the Trump impeachment hearings. Here's John R. Allen with Fiona Hill. 
Now, given the experience that you've had of late, but over your long career, including recently in government and the National Security Council, do you still believe in some of these quintessential characterizations that we maintain about America, about serving our country? Absolutely, John. And I think what we're experiencing right now, the difficulties that you alluded to at the very beginning, when all of us are sequestered at home, working from home, and our communities are under remarkable strain as a result of the response that's required for containing the coronavirus, this comes into a very stark relief. We are seeing now how much independent analysis, data-driven information and, frankly, long experience and deep expertise in dealing with epidemics and with infectious disease is essential at this moment. We've seen Dr. Fauci and many of his colleagues standing up beside the president and appearing on our TV screens on a regular basis and providing the information that they know, also providing it in an unvarnished manner, explaining what they don't know, which is equally important at a time like this and how much they need everyone else to pull behind them to respond. And that's, to me, what America has always been about as well, which is communal response, communities stepping up. America has been founded on the basis of communities, pioneering communities, people who had to pull together as they were setting up new settlements from scratch, be it on the prairie during the homestead period or much earlier on in the first colonies of pioneers who first set up Jamestown and moved beyond uh, Virginia and what's now Massachusetts uh, to establish settlements across the nation. They all required a great deal of communal effort of individuals for sure establishing themselves, but people who knew that their survival over the longer term depended on close cooperation. And people's experience as they built it up about dealing with a new environment and what they learned about this. And for me, what's always been extraordinarily important about America is this idea that people could pull together to build something new. America, for so many people outside, has been a beacon of hope and inspiration, of technological innovation, and of this idea of rugged individualism coming together in new communities that were really forging ahead in quite difficult circumstances. a lot of people to thank here at the end of another extraordinary year for the Brookings Cafeteria podcast, perhaps the most extraordinary of them all. First, I want to thank you, the listeners who tune in to the show every week. I hope you continue to learn about the policy challenges and solutions that matter to you. My sincere thanks to all the scholars and guest hosts who made the Brookings Cafeteria possible this year. I've learned so much from talking and listening to you all. My deepest thanks to my colleagues in the Office of Communications who make the Brookings Cafeteria podcast happen every week and sometimes more than once a week. Gaston Reveredo is our audio engineer, and even though we are not in our professional grade studio in downtown Washington, D.C., he still can make me and our guests sound better. My thanks also to our audio interns this year, Ryan Jacobs and Amelia Hames, both of them students of the excellent audio program at American University, and also to Tim Madden and Colin Cruikshank, who filled in for Gaston from time to time. Also, thank you to my colleagues in communications whose collaboration makes podcasting happen. 
including Chris McKenna, Adriana Pita, Marie Wilkin, and Brookings Press Director Bill Feynman, who does the book interviews. And much thanks to our communications intern this fall, Olivia Tran, who worked with me on this episode and on other projects. And finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez, who leads the podcasting team at Brookings, and to Andrea Risotto and Emily Horn for their leadership of communications this year. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Email questions or comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Happy New Year. May 2021 be better in every way. I'm Fred Dews. Thank you.